1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. We're going to be looking at biblical hope today. I thought this would be relevant, but in fact, I, uh, I picked this passage out before the hysteria of the coronavirus started really hitting the news, and the NBA canceled its games, and March Madness closed down, and pandemic. And so, in God's providence, I think it's important that we look at this passage, and we remind ourselves of where our eyes should be, where our gazing should be. One of my friends, Micah Tuttle, he uh, did a short Facebook post. He said this, more articles about the coronavirus have been read, perhaps, for some of us than chapters in our Bibles. We've talked more fervently to friends about the coronavirus than perhaps we've talked to them about the gospel. Perhaps we're more prepared for the coronavirus than we are for the Lord's return. Perhaps we're more concerned about this pandemic of coronavirus than about the pandemic of sin. Challenging thoughts. I'm not, I'm not accusing anyone. I didn't have anyone in mind when I thought I'd quote that. But I think it's a challenging question for Christians across the world to consider. Do we have a living hope? Let's read our passage and we'll pray and we'll walk our way through 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Refreshing. I think this will be encouraging for all of us. Peter writes, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by the power of God are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the genuine testedness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, we're thankful that today we can have hope and hope in you. A Savior that we cannot see at the moment, but who is risen, alive, and well, who is at your right hand. We're thankful that this is a hope that's already kept for us, and that it's a hope that is it's death-proof, it's time-proof, it's sin-proof. We're thankful that we can raise our eyes today on a bright horizon, even in the midst of what some would consider a storm. We're thankful that we can have this inner joy and that we have opportunity to tell others about the hope that we have in Christ. Help us today to be encouraged and challenged as we look at your word. We pray that you'd work in our midst. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to paint a picture of this passage, I think this is how I would paint on this canvas. First, I'd take this nice, clean, white canvas, and I'd dip my broad brush in blacks and grays and I would paint the backdrop. Because 
As I read 1 Peter, look at verse 3, he has just stated that these are Christians who are born again. They're spiritually reborn to a living hope. But he's writing to believers, encouraging them with that truth in the midst of severe trials, as we just read. Severe persecution, persecution, trials, loss of job, perhaps looting of their homes, loved ones imprisoned, perhaps some even dying. And so with that in mind, I have that very dark backdrop. But then, with those blacks and grays as the backdrop, I would take a new brush and I would dip it in paint that is bright red. And I would paint across the canvas H, O, P, E, and an exclamation point for good measure, hope. That's, that's what I see here. And, and I would even, I think, add a bright horizon with some oranges and yellows and some more reds. Because that's exactly what we have here. He spells out hope for believers in the midst of circumstances that perhaps we can't even fathom. Such intense New Testament-sized persecution and trials. So he's writing to suffering Christians. He's encouraging them. He has a pastor's heart. And he's reminding them of their present hope in a brighter future. And I think hope is the key theme of this chapter. William McDonald, he often has great quotes. He's so succinct and concise. He says, what is hope? Hope is the link between our present and our future. Hope is the link between our present and our future. It's what allows us to stand firm. And he says, with inexpressible joy, such joy that you can't even put it into words. You know that joy, I think, as believers even in the face of terrible things. It's different than happiness, which is tied to circumstances. Ours is a joy, no matter what the circumstances are. And so it's an inner liberty at present, this hope and this joy, in spite of the trials and the suffering. It's a present hope in the future. Now, we're going to eventually look at the specific contents of this living hope. What is the living hope, according to this passage? But let me just say this, and I think any of you could tell me this, I bet we know it, that New Testament hope is very distinct from modern concepts of hope or modern ways that we use the word hope, right? When people say hope, like maybe when the weatherman says hope, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Well, I know you're having a parade today or a picnic. Well, there's a 50% chance that it won't rain. Ah, yeah. It leaves you with a little bit of anxiety. There's no certainty. There are if clauses attached, but not with New Testament hope, not with biblical hope. Ours is not a hoping kind of hope. Ours is a knowing kind of hope. I'm borrowing that quote, and I think it's really good. Ours is not a hoping kind of hope. It's a knowing kind of hope. It is certainty in God's promises. Here's a, a really good definition. It is looking to things unseen, to things that are unshakable. It's an unshakable confidence in God's future promises. It's an unshakable confidence, a certainty about God's word and his promises. So again, pastorally, Peter knows that these believers right now need a long view. Let's lift our eyes. Let's take the long view here, guys. Let's look with a future orientation. Eschatology, the study of last things. Well, sometimes Christians, we, we preach eschatology, and it's more for curiosity's sake. When will these things happen? And that's important. We should have our convictions. But often, eschatology is given 
with pastoral concerns, to, to encourage the, the believers to keep running the race, to give them hope in the midst of the struggle. And that's what we want to do today. We need to get our eyes off the situation around us and look different than the culture because our eyes are on things above, as Ephesians says. So the hope that Peter's reminding these believers of is not a desperate holding on to, a faded dream, a limp, dead hope. It's called, specifically, notice, a living hope. Because it's founded on what? Well, he says, it's founded on, in verse 3, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're getting ready to celebrate this Easter, Jesus' resurrection. And I think that's my favorite thing in the world to think about, is Christ is risen. He's gone through death and out the other side. Well, he says, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's primarily why it's a living hope because it's based on a living Savior who's holding for us an inheritance that's already garrisoned and guarded and kept in heaven at this very moment. So let's go through and, and flesh out the implications of this passage. Let's think it through. Look at verse 3 again. In, in verse 3, Peter praises God for what God has already done in the lives of these Christians. He says, mercifully, God has brought them into a new birth. He's caused them to be born, salvations of the Lord. He has caused them to be born again to a living hope. These are born-again Christians. Now, sometimes we hear that phrase, born again, specifically, uh, I I guess I should say, often in a a political reference, you know, those born-again Christians, uh, the the right-wingers, the fundamentalists, we think almost sometimes that it's a kind of Christianity. Well, there are Christians, and then there are the born-again Christians out in Iowa. But in the New Testament, they're not a certain kind of Christian. If you're born again, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. And you've been born again. You've been made a new creation in Christ. You're brand new. God has regenerated you. You've been raised from death to life spiritually. And that's who he's he's talking to. You're born again people. And the fact is, every New Testament writer, John, Paul, Peter, and then on top of that, Jesus himself, they all indicate that you must be born again if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. You, you know the, the great 1700 uh, preacher, George Whitfield. he traveled back and forth between Britain and America. He crossed the Atlantic 13 times preaching the gospel, and his favorite passage was John 3. He constantly preached about the new birth. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. One of his friends in Parliament once addressed him and said, you know, okay, we get the point. Why are you always hounding on the new birth? Why do you always preach John 3? Why do you always say, you must be born again? He thought for a minute. He replied, because it says you must be born again. It's that essential. You're born again. When when a person places their confidence in Jesus, like you would trust in a parachute, when someone trusts in Jesus, they, they have repentant faith, they're forgiven of their sins, and I believe simultaneously the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you. You're, you're reborn, you're regenerated, you're a new creation. You've been transformed. You haven't just been forgiven of your sins, you've had a spiritual heart transplant. Something amazing has happened to you, something miraculous. That's the Christian life. But Peter, in bringing up the new birth, doesn't just dwell on the present. He doesn't just look to the past. He now wants to move on to the Christian's future. 
So the person who is born again, he says, that person has a very bright future, and I want you to remember this. In other words, as people born of God, we are those with a living hope, a present hope, and glorious future inheritance, a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Do you have hope? That's a question we would want to ask our friends. Do you have hope? And maybe that's not the best question. Maybe the better question is, what do you have hope in? Because everyone has hope in something. There's no doubt. Everyone is placing their meaning, purpose, identity, significance, and hope in something, either in this world or outside this world. So in what do you place your hope? Well, for the Christian, our, our hope is so unique. And he points us to a hope that is living and alone that is sufficient to meet our needs in this life and in the next. So I just want to, with the rest of our time, consider three, three questions, three key questions. Why is a living hope necessary? What is the living hope? And then how do we acquire, how do we make it ours, this living hope? First of all, why is it necessary? Before we look at the contents of living hope, why is it necessary that we have this, not just hope, but a living hope? The answer is, again, I think people to whom he is writing are suffering. See, in verse 5 he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I love that he doesn't give a specific trial. He says various, so that all of us can say, well, I've got a trial that would fit in this overall heading. We can apply this passage to ourselves. We all have some kind of trial. And if you haven't, you will eventually. And they are feeling real sorrow, and they're grieving because of the persecution. Again, some are being killed. Their houses are being plundered. And so the reason that hope comes up is that if, if you're going to get through this life, you have to have hope. One writer said, there's no way to get through this life unless you can get through the suffering. And there's no way to get through the suffering unless you have hope. And not just any kind of hope. It's going to have to be a hope from outside this world, a living hope. Without hope, there is no spiritual or physical survival. I want to illustrate this. It's a lengthy illustration, but I think it's profound. It changed the way I look at hope. There is a a writer named Viktor Frankl. Have you heard of him? He's written a a book called Night and several others. uh, He's not a believer. Well, he's passed away. He is now. Um, He was a Jewish man, a psychotherapist who was in Auschwitz. He was in some of the concentration camps during World War II, and he actually survived to write about it. As a therapist, a doctor, a scientist, he was fascinated by the way that other inmates and prisoners handled this incredible suffering that they face in the death camps. He noticed that there were, he summed it up, four different ways that people responded to this epic suffering. He said, first, some people, even the nicest people, in this situation became brutal in the death camps, even cruel towards other, prisoner, other prisoners. They would... They would literally trample each other to get to bread. Even some of his friends became brutal, lost all composure. He said, secondly, some just plain gave up. He writes, many prisoners just lost all hope, and without hope, they lost their spiritual hold. This would happen rather quickly. The symptoms were very similar to us who were experienced camp inmates. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when The person simply refused to get up in the morning. They wouldn't get dressed. They wouldn't go out to the courtyard for their inspection. 
No entreaties, no blows had any effect on them. They just laid there. They had given up and nothing bothered them anymore because they had no more hope. There is a dramatic example he recounts. He says, one of my fellow prisoners, a well-known composer, told us that he had had a dream that the war would soon be over, March 30th. He was convinced that this dream was a revelation from God. And so he set his hope on March 30th. Well, after a while, it became very clear that the war would not soon draw to a close. It became clear that it would not end soon. And so on March 29th, this inmate began to run a high fever. On the day of his hope, March 30th, with no end in sight, he lost consciousness. On March 31st, the day after, he was deceased. The loss of hope had lowered his body's resistance to all the diseases in the camp. How can you survive it without hope? So some became brutal. Some of the nicest people just lost their equilibrium. Some lost all hope and shriveled up and died, even the most optimistic people by nature. He said there was a third group. Some said, I, I can hold on if I can get out, and then I'll get my hope back. So this is very telling. Many people said, I'm going to hold on so that I can get back to my hope, my treasure, my meaning, my purpose, my significance, my reason for living. If I can just hold on, then I can get my hope back. Here's the problem, though. He said, after the liberation, so many people found that when the day of their dreams had finally come, it was much different than they had expected. It wasn't all that they had hoped it would be. They were disappointed by their hope, this earthly hope. Many people got these earthly treasures back, the objects of their hope, but they went into deep depression, deep depression for the rest of their lives, he recounts. Some even committed suicide. He goes on, and so many of us said to each other that no earthly happiness could comfort us after all that we had suffered down here. And afterwards, we were not prepared for the disillusionment. So some became brutal, some gave up, some thought if they could just get through this and get out and get their hope back, they'd be okay, but they always found it insufficient. The hope down here, the things down here, insufficient for, as he said, unalterable joy. Unalterable joy. It, it did not bring peace or satisfaction that they thought it would. We, we know this, right? It's what Augustine said. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. But fourthly, he said, then there is another group. It was a smaller group. These are the ones who survived. He said, only a few of the prisoners kept their inner, their full inner liberty and obtained an inner strength that raised them up above their outward circumstances. Only a few people were able to stay kind, stay buoyant, not happy, of course, but liberated internally. Only a few were able to maintain that inner liberty. Why? What created the difference? This is what he said, and he's not inspired. But I'm borrowing because what he says, I think, complements the inspired Apostle Peter. He said this was the difference. Life in the concentration camp tears open the human soul and exposes its depths, its foundations, its treasures, its hopes, and so suffering reveals a man or a woman's foundation, what he builds his identity and hope upon. Concerning those in the camp who would come to me for advice, he said, as they would ask the question, how do we survive this doctor? He said, life only has meaning if we have a hope 
and a meaning that even suffering and death cannot destroy. A living hope. Life only has ultimate meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that even suffering and death cannot destroy. And so he would say to his friends, again, he wasn't a Christian. He would say, though, remember that someone is looking down on you from above. A friend, a spouse, God, and we must not disappoint them. Now, this is what he is saying, and I think, again, it fits what Peter is saying in our passage. He's saying, do you know what the foundation of your personality is? It is what you're living for. It's your hope. It is your future. And what your future hope is, what your ultimate hope is, completely determines how you're going to handle the now, even your present suffering. So, again, get what Frankl is saying. If you make your hope a finite, limited, earthly object, any temporal limited object, health, family, fun, food, fitness, falling in love, a person, personal achievement, fortune, position in society, the American dream, none of these are bad, by the way. But, and this goes along with what we saw in our, our idolatry discussion. But if you make any even good thing, an ultimate thing, if you make any finite thing your ultimate hope, you will be sorely disappointed and you'll lose. You're going to have to find a living hope, a hope that is death-proof, time-proof, something outside this world. So, for example, if I make my wife, and she's amazing, if I were to make her my ultimate hope, my identity, my meaning, then we're both going to be in trouble because I look back at... 20-some years ago at our engagement pictures at the Arboretum here in town. We're pretty good looking. I mean, we're looking like models. At least I think so. She is, at least. And then I, I look at our present pictures. I can't really say this as much about her. She looks just fine. But I, I can tell I'm dying. I can tell I'm getting older. We used to have youth group kids over to the house for breakfast back in Atlantic, warm breakfast. And we had a picture of our engagement picture on the piano. And one of the kids went up to it and like, oh, that is an awesome picture. Who's that with Julie? I was like, that's me. Man, you used to be good looking. Get out. I'm fading. I'm dying. And so I'm not going to be a great source of hope and security for her. It's going to let her down. Or what if I make parenting? What if parenting is my identity and my hope? What if it gives me meaning every morning? Well, what if something goes wrong with my child? Or what if something goes wrong with my parenting? Or sports. We say to the young people, basketball, sports, makes a terrible God because it eventually, it eventually ends. I wouldn't put your hope there. And so unless you get a spiritual, infinite reference point, unless you get something beyond this life, unless you get an imperishable living hope, you will not be able to handle the suffering down here, which is really the, just the stripping away of all those things. And if you can't handle suffering, you, you can't handle life. And you, you might be able to say, well, listen, uh, I'm never going to be in a concentration camp. But what do you think a concentration camp is? But the terrible inevitabilities of life all at once. If you live long enough, you're going to lose everything, health, family, position, everything that would be taken away in an instant in a concentration camp. It just, it's prolonged. So please don't have hope in the things down here, ultimate hope. And so Peter is saying that if you have a living hope, you can be the kind of person who can, look at verse 6, 
Still rejoice, though grieved by trials. Still experience that inner tranquility when you're facing suffering. So the only reason we can put any stock in what Viktor Frankl says is because it complements the Apostle Paul who says, get a living hope, and you have one if you're born again. And so next, what is the content of the Christian's hope? What is the content of our living hope? Well, sometimes it helps to look at the synonyms all around, look at the context. By considering the synonyms in the following verses, we understand what the Christian's living hope really is. It's an inheritance, he says in verse 4, one that's already safe and kept in heaven for you. Verse 4, he says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance. This is the living hope. An inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is the believer's imperishable future inheritance. Verse 5 refers to this living hope, this inheritance, as a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So the New Testament speaks of Christians as already being saved, but there's an already not yet to our salvation. There's an already and a not yet aspect to our wonderful God-given salvation. Already we're forgiven. Already we're born again. Already we stand in the hope. We stand in a space where we can say there's no condemnation. We are already delivered from sin's tyranny and mastery and power of our lives. We're already sons and daughters. We're already adopted. But there's a not yet aspect to this. Already we're saved, but the not yet is that we have not entered into his immediate presence. We still look forward to his commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. We still look forward to those heavenly rewards for our Christian service. We look forward to brand new resurrection bodies. No more cancer, no more pain, no more Tourette syndrome, no more aches and pains or arthritis. We look forward to a perfect environment, perfectly suited for our new resurrection bodies, a new heavens and a new earth. There'll be no more tears or pain or death or coronavirus. What an inheritance. Peter's flow of thought is this, that while Christians may suffer in this age and, and have no future down here, there is waiting for us an inheritance that is sure and real and better than any earthly reward and far more lasting. Peter describes our inheritance with three adjectives. It's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and he says it's unfading. First he says it's incorruptible, which means that like the, unlike the things down here in this age, it can't rot or corrupt or crack or decay. It's incorruptible. Our inheritance is permanent. It's death-proof, in other words. It's incorruptible. It's death-proof. And then secondly, it's undefiled, our inheritance, our future salvation, the future aspect of it. It is morally pure. It's, it is undefiled. Sin can't affect it. Our failures can't take it away. This inheritance itself is in perfect condition. It's in mint condition. Nothing can dim it or spoil its purity. So it's sin-proof, death-proof and sin-proof. And then he says it's unfading, which indicates that unlike flowers that will wither at the end of the spring and that will have to be tossed away, this inheritance is eternal and will never wither or become old. It's time-proof. So it's death-proof, it's sin-proof, it's time proof. For all these reasons, our heavenly inheritance is better than any earthly reward 
or inheritance. This is the only proper foundation for our hope. And I know we know this, but we have to preach to our hearts. We have to remind ourselves because we sometimes get full of anxiety and fear because we've just not taken the long view. There was a pastor who was struggling with fear and anxiety. He, he wrote to another pastor, a, a, another godly man for accountability, and the brother simply just wrote back a small note, Brother, take the long view. Brother, take the long view. That has always stuck with me. And, and also, this is a wonderful thought too. Notice how safe our inheritance is. It is kept in heaven for you. It's already kept. It's guarded. The language is that of a, a fortress or a garrison. It's already garrisoned. It's protected. It's, it's already secure and guarded. While, while Christian adversaries might destroy all that we have in this world or illness may strip away our health or our family or our fortune or our talents or abilities, there's an inheritance that no force on earth can touch. This is an inheritance that gives us hope in the darkest times. It's a living hope based on the resurrection of the risen Christ. So it's important to notice something about the safety of our inheritance. It is kept, verse 4. It's kept in heaven. This inheritance is guarded. That's the imagery. Now, here's the thing. It's so radical. This is really allowing us to talk about the gospel right now. You have an inheritance, a salvation, that's already kept. See, I grew up in a, in a liberal church where I was given good advice about what I had to do to strive and earn a future place in heaven, an inheritance. And then when I was 17, I heard the gospel, which means, what's gospel mean? Good news. I heard the good news for the first time at 17. Good news about what he has done. See, we're people of, of, all about history. We look back to what Christ has done and accomplished. When he says on the cross, it is finished. When he goes and he dies, and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's being forsaken of God's fellowship so that we don't have to. So he's doing the work, and then he rises from the dead, and, and, and the check clears. We know the debt's been paid, that God has validated and vindicated Jesus' death, his saving work. It's a saving work. And so I have an inheritance that is already earned. It's kept. It's garrisoned. I don't have to strive for it. There are no conditional clauses attached to it. If you do this and if you do that, no, it's already kept. And so I would always want to remind a friend about the difference between the gospel and moralism. I think that's one of our main jobs when we're talking to people, religious people in Dubuque who've been inoculated with religion. It's, no, I'm, I'm not saying what you think I'm saying. I'm not asking you to come to our church and give money and go through the motions and do the rituals and partake in the sacraments. We're asking you to come into a personal relationship with a living Christ. How does the Gospel of Mark begin? This is what we've been going through in our evangelistic Bible study with some friends. It begins this way. The good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's good news, and it's about a person. The good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's good news about a living person. And so he doesn't say, you've been born again to a living hope based on your good works, based on your perseverance, based on the things you've done. He says, no, you've been born again by the mercies of God. In other words, God's no-strings-attached love, mercy. It's when you don't get 
what you deserve. It's no strings attached love. It's not reciprocal. It's not, well, if you do this, I'll do this. It's, it's one-way love. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He shows you mercy, and he gives you an inheritance that's kept in heaven. It's already guarded for you. And it's based on the resurrection. It's a living hope you've been born again to. It's a work of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's based on his work. And he talks in verse 5 about our faith that's guarded. A faith for a salvation. It's through faith. It's faith that takes hold of the free gift. Faith is the open hands that receives the, the amazing free gift of God. And so... There, there's a gospel message right there in that little phrase. It's already kept for you in heaven. Show that to a friend sometime who's wrestling with the gospel. Let them see that there is something that's already been bought for them. They've been given a, a free gift if they'll just take it. So no more striving to get the inheritance. It's already ours in Christ Jesus. No if clauses. Love that. On the last day, you will get it. One writer said... God will, on the last day, give us everything that Jesus Christ deserves. He will give us his delight, his honor. You will be enveloped in love and acclaimed and acclamation from God, verse 7. We will be treated in accordance with Jesus' perfect record because Jesus took the punishment for our imperfect record. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You stand before God as if you are Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. It's Charles Spurgeon. Love a little Spurgeon. So the question is, and I think we've already touched on it as we wrap up, how do we acquire this living hope? Well, we said it, it, it's, it's the key word in, in verse 5 and verse 7. It, it's through faith. It's through faith. We don't earn it. We simply receive it. Faith is an open pair of hands that receives the gift. If it's free, if it's already kept, if it's already been earned, it's ridiculous to strive for it. My favorite illustration of faith is one told by a friend of, about a friend of E.M. Bounds, the great uh, Civil War chaplain, wrote uh, uh, many prayers, uh, many books about prayer and faith. And we'll close with this. E.M. Bounds says, my friend A.C. Dixon was standing, and this is paraphrased, he was standing on his vast property looking over it one day, and he heard the sound of baying hounds, hounds in pursuit of their quarry, chasing after something. You, you know the English setting, you've got the people on the horse and the, the many hounds, and he's expecting to see a fox jump out of the timber and up the field through his property, but no, it's a little fawn, a little baby deer, and it keeps running, and all of a sudden the hounds jump the fence in hot pursuit, and they're getting closer, and he, he looks at that deer, and he says, its race was well run nigh. It was almost done. It was breathing and panting, about done, about captured by the hounds. He said it got within 10 feet of A.C. Dixon, looked at the hounds, looked at A.C. Dixon, and true story, he said it ran and it put its head between A.C. Dixon's legs and then looked up at him as if to say, in my weakness, I appeal to your strength. He said, at that moment, I, I had to pick him up. I, I couldn't let the hounds hurt him. So I picked him up, and I fought those hounds off. And he said, as I did that, I thought about when God, the hound of heaven, chased me down and saved me from the hounds of sin and death. In my weakness, I appeal to your strength. 
That's faith. Faith isn't a work. It's just, it's just responding to God's no-strings-attached grace. I love that it's so free, and it's God that gets all the praise here because he's given me a hope, and it's living because of his work and his resurrection. And so we have a living hope today. We, we can be different and respond differently when our friends are concerned about toilet paper <laughs> or, <laughs> or the virus. And we should be cautious. We should be wise. But we don't have to be overwhelmed by fear and dread. Death is coming anyway. You know that, right? Whether it's corona or something else. But we have a living hope. Father, we're thankful that we can lift our eyes to the things above where you are our treasure. You are our treasure. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain because in dying we gain you, our eternal home and our, our wonderful Savior. We don't just look at the bridegroom's attire. We look at our bridegroom's gifts. No, but at you. We are so thankful for you. Help us today to live in light of our glorious future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.